Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University, broadcasting live from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio South. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call, where we're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your producer, Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Becca Williams, who is back. That's right, folks. Becca is back in studio. <laughs> Today, we'll be discussing news on social media, U.S.-Israel relations, and Roe v. Wade. We also have a special report on USA Gymnastics and a great package on a young woman on Long Island who made some incredible history. Becca, welcome back. How are you today? It is great to be back, Danny. I heard that your show with Matt as my replacement went fantastic, so I'm so sorry to come in and replace him. <laughs> it's all right. No, I can't, <laughs> n- nothing beats the OG host. Oh, yeah. This is our show. Matt <laughs> Matt and I had a good time. Maybe we'll do another show again, but I'm so happy you're back after <laughs> your long absence. It's, it's a beautiful morning today, honestly. I was walking here, and I was like, oh, this is like perfect weather. And I found parking you immediately did? when oh, I Oh, nice. Yeah, because I know that's been a struggle for you <laughs> in the past. <laughs> yeah, yesterday I actually drove all the way over here to go to class, couldn't find parking. So I just gave up and I left and I missed my class. Ooh, that's I'm tough. I'm over it. There's too many people on campus. Us all coming back. I'm ex- I was so excited for it and now I'm regretting it. You know what I said? I said when I was walking over the Unispan, I go, you know, this is a movie and half the people in the student center are just extras. That's what I'm con- I'm just convinced. They're all they're not supposed to be here. They're just getting paid minimum minimum <laughs> actors pay to just show up and pretend they're ordering Starbucks oh just to make life more difficult, give the illusion that everyone's back. The Starbucks line, can we talk about that? Oh my god. Well, I don't drink coffee, so I don't really I don't really understand it, but I've heard it's bad. It's it's like miles long. That's an exaggeration, but it's it's always really long. Sometimes it's like all the way back to the wall on the opposite side by the bookstore. I've seen it wrapped around the student center door. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. Well, good thing I don't drink coffee because it doesn't affect <laughs> me. But we have a jam-packed show, so enough yes. dilly-dallying. Um, first story here, it's about social media, and a new study, a new study shows that about half of Americans get their news off of social media, though that percentage has dropped since 2020. And a recent report from the Pew Research Center finds that around 48% of US, U.S. adults get their news from social media regularly in 2021, which is a 5% decline from 53% in 2020. The subtle shift comes as social media companies are under the microscope for rampant misinformation on their platforms, especially during the pandemic's continued surge and, of course, the election. This concern was substantiated as those who got their news primarily off of social media tended to be less knowledgeable about the issues and were more likely to be exposed to fringe conspiracies. Facebook believe it or not, was the most prominent social media source at 33%, YouTube in second at 22%, and Twitter and Instagram rounding out the top four at 13 and 11% respectively. Across the board, except for TikTok, the percentage of each platform's users who got their news from that platform saw declines. And this didn't surprise me for the reason that, you know, for the first time ever, social media is really hitting its breaking point. Uh, The amount of goop and muck, misinformation all over the place during the pandemic and election year seemed like it really drove people away. I know it certainly made me just want to shut my phone off and never turn it on again. Young people like myself, as studies show, are far more reliant on social media for news, but older generations are always going to gravitate towards cable news, which is obviously still king. But no matter the source, I care more about our people conscious, cons- conscious consumers of the news. That's really what's important. No matter what you get it from, I mean, do you take everything with a grain of salt and then substantiate your what you believe you know, by research, by extra extra efforts, you know, that's really what I care about. And it, I think it's just interesting that social media is seeing a decline. And I guess the Facebook mom is not really dead yet, Becca. <laughs> but what do you think? 
I think social media has huge upsides and downsides. For one, people can post anything on social media. And for a long time, it wasn't really fact-checked. I think uh, now that we're having some misinformation with the vaccines, and especially I think it started with misinformation around the election, um, was when social media sites really started to take it upon themselves to kind of put those. I don't know if you've ever seen like the warnings on a tweet or like on a Facebook post where it's like, um, I don't remember exactly what it says, but it says something like, Warning, this is misinformation. Yeah, they showed a like, fact checker. Yeah, um, something like that to kind of have a way to buffer um, between people just posting whatever they want online. And because some people will read that and immediately think, oh, well, you know, they posted it online, so it's true. Or they'll read it and um, not do any further research on their own. I think that's when social media is actually a good way to educate yourself on a situation is when you use it to make yourself aware of issues and then you do your own separate research outside of that because it is a really good way for worldwide communication for you to hear about issues that are happening on the other side of the world from people that are experiencing those. But then you have to look at those and really break down what it is they're talking about and then do your own research to come to your own educated opinion. Yeah, the democratization of information on social media is the real culprit because anyone can make any infographic about anything and anyone can make a story spread like wildfire. I mean, and we like to make fun of those cheesy info infographics, but at least a lot of them from the big pages, they cite their sources, which I think is really nice. And a lot of, you know, the things that are on the fringe, fringe conspiracies, it's all about, it's all, you know, trust me on this, you know, it's got to be true, tinfoil <laughs> at. So that's really the the, the, the economy there, it's all about, you know, there are posts that are well-researched and they certainly have good information, but there's a lot of possibility for things to spread without any real, you know, truth to it. And mm -hmm. also joining us now, Farisa Hossein, our reporter. I know you have some thoughts on this, Farisa. First of all, how are you this morning? And second of all, give us your take on the social media story. I am super tired, but <laughs> I'm always happy to be here. Um, one thing I found interesting is that the top percentage uh, was 33% from Facebook. And most Facebook users are older demographic from 25 to 40-year-olds. You would think they would not believe everything posted on social media. But it, that is literally the first thing everyone opens when they start using their phone. So I, you know, don't always find everything on social media to be accurate. But I do think social media increases a lot of exposure that we're getting. For example, if you think back to 2020 when the Black Lives Matter movement was happening and the amount of organizations and resources that were available, um, and there was a lot of understanding to the effects that the black people and other minorities were going through, and they have been helpful. So, you know, it's, it's a 50-50 chance when you think of anything being posted on social media. Yeah, it's the key to, it's, it's the key to good, but it's also the key to bad. It's just a matter of, how we use it you know and that's just i mean you saw with the black lives matter movement there was so remember the blackout squares yes. i mean that was that was more of a symbol but it did was a in, in effect it was news it, that spread it was a news you know movement and of course it got people talking there were critics there were supporters of that whole movement you know and i remember a lot of people were saying don't do it so like like you said with the double-edged sword that's really what it is at this point it's a double-edged sword that you have to just take everything in as an educated, conscious consumer of news. Yeah, so one of the big issues that 
happened with all of those blackout squares was people were using the Black Lives Matter or other related hashtags and all of the black squares were kind of droning out the important posts yeah. and the resources on those hashtags. So when you would click on the hashtags, you would just see all black squares. So a lot of people had an issue with that because of performative activism. I think that's something really important to talk about when you're talking about news through social media, especially with something like the Black Lives Matter movement or with other large protests, uh, is that people can post things on social media very easily and then some people will react to that in a negative way and call it performative activism, especially when you're talking about someone who has a lot of followers or has a large spotlight, like a internet celebrity or um, like a music artist or a movie star or anything like that where they have a large platform and, and a lot of money and resources to donate. And then you see them only kind of posting about it on social media and people will you know accuse them of not actually being uh, aware of the situation and not actually trying to remedy it as best that they can. But then there's also the thing that that ties on top of that, which is like, is it everyone's responsibility to be completely uh, dedicated to a movement? Like if a person only posts it on social media, are you then doing something wrong or are you still raising awareness? And should you be you know, putting all of your energy into every single thing that you post on social media. Yeah, and that ties into my last point I want to make here because that's a really good point. Instagram comes in fourth at 11%. That's where people get their news. So I don't know about you guys. That seems like pretty low for somebody who's on Instagram all the time, right? Yeah. Free, I want to go to you first. What do you think of that 11% number? Do you think that we're just, our perception is a little biased because we're, we're the young youngest demographic and we're using Instagram the most? Or do you think it's pretty accurate? Honestly, I feel like Instagram is much more like valuable in terms of how it approaches the younger generation. Everyone's on Instagram if you think about it. And the amount of stuff that gets put on Instagram, if you think just hashtags and then from like um, you know, known known like uh like profiles like uh breaking news and all that stuff. It's interesting because we, we don't know what to trust and we don't know what is what is truthful and what is not. So And what is performative activism, exactly. what isn't like Becca just said, yeah. which is, you so know. So it's like social media is like very manipulative in that point because you don't know what you should trust and what you should think yeah. is true. In a specific demographic, too. Exactly. What do you think, Becca? Well, I don't get my news off of Instagram. I feel like if any if anything off Instagram, I see more information about things I'm already aware of. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen any breaking news on Instagram. Um, I think of anything, of any social media that I see it on, it would be Twitter because I get notifications for it. And, you know, they have those little notifications that is like breaking news, like, and they have like a little summary of the situation. So I'll get those notifications and that's really... I think the only reason that I would see breaking news on social media. For Instagram though, what I think is really common way to spread information is those infographics, which Danny, you mentioned earlier, yeah. but people, uh, 
will share them on their Instagram story because it's so easy to just click share on there and yeah. to for everyone that follows you to see it. So I do see a lot of those and a lot of them I actually find to be really interesting and helpful as long as you read them. And a lot of them also, depending on you know who posts them, will have the sources cited in the captions or on the uh, on the slides of the infographic. So I think that there's, it's a good way to continue to educate yourself, but as far as breaking news or getting my main source of news, I definitely would not say I use Instagram. Yeah, I definitely use news organization apps from, you know, I basically have every news app on my phone, and most of the time when I want to learn about something, I just Google it. And yeah. it's, Instagram is more of that, oh, I already know this is happening, here's another angle to it or the, an infographic about it. I think that's... I guess that's really how we most people in our demographic demographic consume it because we do we we do stay informed not just on social media but we're very internet savvy as a whole. So I think that the fact that social media news use has declined is not so much of a surprise, especially given how toxic some of these platforms are getting. And you're literally having these CEOs of these companies testifying before Congress about it all. And I think that's really the the straw that's breaking the camel's back. It's all about you know, we've reached, it's reached a limit. There's so much on here now. There's a whole multiverse on Twitter and Instagram <laughs> and, and Facebook that it, it's hard to wade through it. Mm -hmm. It really is. And that's why it's so hard for news to get a foothold because truth is being misconstrued a lot of the time. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about TikTok too. So we haven't really mentioned that. It's a, it's, I know it's a bit of a newer uh, social media uh, app, but I personally get a lot of political TikToks pop oh, up yeah. on my page, and I will look at some of these accounts, and I feel like there's actually a lot of people on there that are really trying to use TikTok to educate people on topics, and there's TikTok pages that are um, that are labeled as like I don't even I don't even know what they are, but they're like young Republicans of America, oh, or like, yeah. uh, conservatives, and then they have like. Um, like communist and socialist pages and like there's all sorts of different there's a tiktok page avenues. for everything yeah there really is and there's also uh during the election there were all of these tiktoks uh, and tiktok pages that were trying to help people have, have resources to vote so i think uh there's a lot of uh good resources on tiktok as well which is kind of like coming up and i think becoming more popular than instagram and that's why you saw the number Go up. That's the one source mm -hmm. that went up. Yeah. And I think TikTok is just broadening. I mean, TikTok has always been a broad platform, but now it's broadening its appeal even further. Now it, it ropes in news to that whole thing. And trust me, there's a TikTok page for everything. I, my <laughs> friend was like, "Oh, I'm on Alice in the Win in the in Wonderland TikTok." I go, "What? <laughs> <laughs> what? That's the thing." Yeah, there's so much content on TikTok. It's ridiculous. That's why people can sit on their people, meaning me, and scroll for hours <laughs> <laughs> because there's just so much and it never ends. It's never, never ends. ending. It never ends. The power of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> the party never ends. <laughs> Travis Scott. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our first story. And Freeha, now I, I am told you are going to Give us a report on USA Gymnastics. Are you uh, ready to go? Yes, I am. All right, the floor is yours. All right. After charges of sexual harassment against U.S. Women's Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nassar surfaced during the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio, he was fired and arrested. An FBI investigation followed, 
but it notoriously lagged on for years until things came to a head this year. This summer, the Justice Department Inspector General concluded in a damning report FBI employees completely botched the investigation into allegations of Nassar's sexual abuse. On September 13, a collection of current and former gymnastics, including uh, Simone Biles, Michaela Maruni, Maggie Nichols, and Ali Raisman testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on the FBI's mismanagement of the investigation into Nassar, who was reported to have sexually assaulted almost 70 young female athletes. The athletes gave a harrowing assessment regarding the FBI investigation, where the borough had explicit details of Nassar's conduct in 2015 but did not act in a substantial manner until a year later. In addition to athletes blamed other divisions of Team USA for not taking swifter action. Holding back tears, Biles stated, I blame Larry Nassar and I also blame an entire system that enabled and perpetrated this abuse. USA Gymnastics and the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee knew that I was abused by their official team doctor. Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, Illinois, the chair of the Senate D Judiciary Committee, said it, it best when he stated, the FBI's handling of Nassar's case is a stain on the barrel. That was a lot. It, it is a lot. And it's, I remember when this came out and it was, it's just absolutely insane. The, 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 how, the depth of how entrenched this guy was with these young athletes. And I went to high school with a bunch of girls on the gymnastics team who were I remember talking to them after this because it was just it was all everything everybody talked about because I mean this was at the highest level of the sport and they were just saying this is ridiculous and I had to I was like you know this is crazy and to think that they didn't act on this when it came out that's just appalling like, appalling absolutely appalling what do you think Becca well I I mean I feel like I'm just gonna echo what you guys have said with the fact that this i mean this have it surfaced in 2016 like freha said and it is now you know 2021 2021 <laughs> so that's a, a long difference and these women have obviously suffered a lot and these are people that are in the spotlight um very publicly and for them to have been able to come forward about this is a huge deal and uh obviously a lot of respect to the women that have been able to come out and uh, speak out against him. So hopefully, uh, you know, we don't see much more of this in the future, but I know that we will. But I'm hoping that, you know, maybe this could be an example set to others. Yeah, and they should have never had to get to the point where they were testifying before the committee because they yeah. weren't testifying about what they went through. They were testifying for how the FBI just did not mm -hmm. do anything. And that's just, I feel, I feel so, all, I, you know, I give them a lot of credit for being brave, being courageous, but it just, it never should have came to that. It never, this should have been nipped in the bud years ago. When I was in middle school, that's when it should have been over. Yeah. <laughs> I was in eighth grade in 2016. Were you actually? Yeah. Oh my god. That was a, that 2016 was a movie. <laughs> but not for, and yeah, for me it was, but for. <laughs> It should have the movie should have ended with this guy's investigation being closed because seventy more than seventy young athletes he abused 
in his time as a team doctor. That's that's un- unbelievable mm-hmm. that they didn't get this guy as soon as the bombshell allegations came out and credible allegations at that. They knew. They just didn't go fast on it. What do you think? Well, any other thoughts, Freya? Um, a lot of these gymnasts are retired except Simone Biles, and she was at the Tokyo Olympics. Yeah. So imagine what was going through her head when, you know, the stressors of, you know, doing all of her fantastic moves on screen in front of millions of people and then having this in the back of her head. Yeah. She probably feel- really was going through a lot, and I feel I feel for her. As a, as a female myself, you know? Yeah, and I think that's something a lot of people forgot, all the people that were really criticizing her. I, th- I was a big defender of hers on the summer show. I went to battle for her, and I, and I think this is something a lot of people forget. It's because guess what? It's been so long. Why do you think people are forgetting it? Because mm-hmm. it's faded into the background. Yeah. And it's finally getting the attention it deserves that the FBI didn't act. And people just forget that... She went through this, and so many other gymnasts shared her story. I'm just glad, you know, even though it had to come to a testimony in the ju- at the Judiciary Committee, finally getting uh, some semblance of a cl- closure in the sense that the government knows that the FBI screwed up. And Absolutely. I th- any other closing thoughts for you? I just hope it gets better. Yeah, me too. Sooner than later at this point, honestly. I agree. Now, moving on to international news, Becca put in a doozy of a story about some recent foreign policy. What do you think? Yeah, we L- have, give it to us, Becca. We have a lot to talk about with yes. this story. So House Democrats voted to remove a billion dollars in funding to Israel's Iron Dome air defense system from their stopgap government funding bill. This is told by ABC News. This bill is a short-term funding for the government through December 3rd. Uh, Democrat lawmakers have accused Israeli military of human rights abuses and made it clear they did not approve of Palestinian treatment. The bill, their stopgap funding bill, has not yet been put into effect. It's waiting approval from Senate by the end of the week where it is likely to fail, uh, which we'll get into why in a few minutes. Moderate Democrats have vowed to introduce a separate bill to provide funding for the Iron Dome, which could pass with enough Republicans on board. So basically, this bill is expected to be blocked by Senate Republicans. Um, It's because this bill suspends debt relief through December 2022, which uh, is not favorable for Senate Republicans. So even though this bill has a lot more uh, important stuff hidden inside of it, there is also this suspension of debt relief, um, which is a huge partisan issue, even though in the past, uh, during the Trump administration, uh, the Senate has did agree to raise the debt limit and did say that it was a bipartisan issue. But now it is kind of becoming a partisan issue again, which is really interesting. What isn't? What is, what it beco- is what isn't becoming partisan at this point? <laughs> yeah, true. Um, and I don't I don't want to get too much into the debt limit aspect of it because that is not the main point of this bill. But it is really important to think about if you would like to know whether this bill will be passed or not because it does rely on if Republicans and Democrats can agree on raising the debt limit. Basically, if you don't know what debt limit is, it is the amount of debt that a country is allowed to take on. So if Congress does not raise the debt limit in this bill, it is likely that the U.S. will default on our debt and trigger a huge breakdown in our already beaten economy post-COVID. 
so if this government stopgap bill that is going to fund our government through December, uh, if it's not passed and funding runs out on September 30th, as expected, then our government will be shut down next week. So that's another huge aspect of it. Um, so we're kind of we're kind of in this waiting where we have to see if it is going to pass through Senate and if Republicans are going to agree to raise the debt limit in order to pass this bill. But the real thing that we're talking about today is something inside the bill is that the funding to Israel's IR defense system, uh, they removed a billion dollars from it. And that wasn't Republicans that did the removing, it was Democrats that removed it from their own bill. Um, so I feel like I've talked a lot about this, Danny. <laughs> um, what do you have well, to say? First off, Iron Dome sounds like something you would hear about on Monday Night Raw. <laughs> and now from the Iron Dome, it's Monday Night Raw. But the here's the thing. The progressive Democrats were the ones who instigated the removal of the funding, and they're shooting themselves in the foot because there's not enough support for this to go through. And picking this battle is going to doom the, the hopes of this bill. And I'm only – and look, of course you vote your conscience and you stand by your principles, but we have a government shutdown, what, every year at this point? Mm-hmm. Don't you not mm-hmm. want to have one for once, you know? <laughs> and I saw you reference this thread too, but I'm going to be to the punch. There's a thread by moderate Democrat Michigan rep Alyssa Slotkin that lays oh, out – yeah. That Twitter thread is – I think it's perfect to describe it, the situation. Yeah, and here's why progressive Democrats' opposition is nothing but trouble. The Iron Dome is a purely defensive – defense system. The ID was co-developed by Americans and has the ability to be used by America's military. Mm -hmm. And funding for the ID is not new. Obama renegotiated the terms in 2016. So does this make the Iron Dome worth funding? That's a question you're going to have to answer for yourself. And that's a debate that needs to happen in a vacuum, independently of why politicians support Israel from a political perspective, because this bill is about funding, right? And it also needs to happen with the understanding that the Palestinians don't have this. I think that's something people are kind of looking past. There is no Palestinian Iron Dome. Mm-hmm. So when people talk about, oh, the the Israelis need this for their defense, yeah, guess what? They don't ha- the the people they're quote unquote fighting don't have the same thing. And mm-hmm. it's the most people in Gaza are not Hamas terrorists, right? And the the conflict that has been gripping the Middle East between those two countries, it's a power imbalance which is why you've heard people call it a, um, call it an occupation because of the gross inequity of Israel's, you know, the Iron Dome, their military, their resources, their wealth, their support from international, from inter- the international community against Palestine that has none of this. The Iron Dome is one example of that power imbalance. And the fight over another country within the Democratic Party is only going to lead to, to the inability to keep the government open, which I think is just ridiculous. If the government is going to shut down, at least let it be over something domestic, right? And progressive dying on, progressives dying on this hill will achieve nothing but just sever the relationship between the very fragile wings of the Democratic Party. Because let's not forget, Joe Biden, very pro-Israel. So mm-hmm. even if this somehow makes it to his desk, he's not signing it. Because he tweeted out that he was so proud of what he did in the Obama administration about keeping Israel. And of course, you always hear every president say Israel has the right to defend itself. Literally, that's like just you, see, you hear that ad nauseum from the bully pulpit at this point. And do we need to reevaluate our relationship with Israel? Sure. But is that reevaluation happening right now going to help this bill? No. And it's going to potentially lead to catastrophic consequences with the government shutting down again. 
and it just happens all the time now. Like it's this something that should never happen. Yeah. What do we rent the government out? Like it's a Kia Sorento. <laughs> you can't. It, it's a government. It's not a car. We got to keep it open. <laughs> yeah. So I want to kind of go off of what you just said, Danny. Basically of why this money was taken out of the air defense funding because we have been funding Israel for a long time. Long and we time. did we did uh we have been funding specifically the Iron Dome for a while because we assisted in developing the Iron Dome. So there's a huge debate in the Dem- in the Democratic Party right now over Israeli support. It is definitely not helping the state of the bill because Democrats look very divided and Republicans are latching onto that, which is something that Danny kind of already went into. Um Basically, what we're seeing is Republicans siding more with Israel and promoting their funding because Israel's leaders in the past recent years have been very conservative and do align with U.S. Republicans and Trump's views. And they see them as an ally, while some Democrats do not. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about why Republicans might feel like they have more allies in Israel than Democrats do. A consistent and effective criticism of Biden and the Democrats is basically what Republicans are seeing in this conflict. Cruz accused Democrats, as well as others, not just Ted Cruz, but Ted Cruz accused Democrats of being anti-Semitic and anti-Israeli. He also said that they were acting like press secretaries for terrorists rather than members of U.S. Congress. Um, That was in AP. Trump in 2019 mentioned many times that members of the Democratic Party, such as AOC, were anti-Israel as a way to shame them. And what really surprised me with this was with Trump and other Republicans' strong America first stance, you would not usually see Trump supporting a foreign country so strongly. You, I mean, you wouldn't see this with China or even with a neutral country like Canada. Well, you might not see him, uh, you know, Saying, like he wants to get rid of NAFTA, but he wants to support Israel. Yeah, that sort yeah, of, yeah. That, that sort of contradiction. So, I was doing a little bit of research into why why is this happening? Why do you see Trump and other Republicans supporting this foreign country so strongly? So, one explanation that I found that I thought was really interesting is that conservative white Christians who vote mainly Republican are concerned with maintaining the religious and racial character of America. Most Republicans fear a less white, less Christian America. And this is according to a Pew Research poll where a majority of Republicans, by a margin of 46 points, said they believed American customs and values would become weaker if whites were not the majority. So there's a lot of racial and religious fear. And then when you see people like former President Trump kind of using that racial and religious fear to promote why we should be allies and supporting and funding uh, countries like Israel because it does align with the views of keeping that country's uh, current religious and racial character intact. I think that's where some of that allyship is coming from, and that's why we're seeing a large disagreement between the two parties of um, of supporting Israel. Well, before I let Frio, I definitely want to get you in on this conversation, but you want to know the real reason they support Israel? That's part of it, but you want to know the real reason? Yes, because most Republicans are, there's a, a good plurality of Republicans are evangelical Christians, right? Mm-hmm. Part of that belief is that the end of the world will happen in Jerusalem, right? Part of the, because that's Christ's second coming. The part of the, one of the conditions they believe for Christ's second coming 
is that the 12 tribes of Israel will reunite in Israel. So what does that mean? Israel has to exist. So, and think about this, 46% of Americans think we live in the end times. Mm -hmm. So you have a good voting block of a national political party believing this is it, this is the last generation and the end is nigh. So guess what? Israel needs to exist. So when the end comes, it's gonna happen in our lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why they support this. And you've, see, you've seen everything about it from Mike Pompeo to Mike Pence, people in Trump's administration were such strong evangelical Christians and they talked about how Israel needs to be defended, but why? Because it's called Christian Zionism. That's why they keep it. That's why they're so staunchly pro-Israel because Israel needs to exist for their belief of the, of the end to be able to be realized. So that's why you see, especially from the Christian right, that's why they support Israel because it's all about, okay, our Christian Zionists believe this is where the world is going to end. Israel needs to be, exist. We need to defend Israel against its neighbors so that it could be around when Christ comes back. That's their mentality. Mm -hmm. Now, Freya, what do you think about this whole um, Iron Dome issue with the parties bickering about it? Honestly, I just want to know what Israel is, needs it for. What, what are they protecting it themselves with, from? And if it's the answer is Palestine, that's not a legit answer whatsoever. I've seen p pictures of Palestine in rubble this entire summer, and it was breaking my heart. And um, if you go back to the point of religion, there's three religions that exist in Israel, Christianity, Islam and Judaism. So, you know, what if you're going to have majority of Israel be um, part of the Jewish and the Christian population, what about the Muslim population? You're basically pushing them out from what? That place also means something to them too, you know? Yeah. So the Iron Dome, it just feels like it's unnecessary. And if the government goes bankrupt because of it it just it's gonna say a lot about what we're supporting and what we're putting our money towards yeah and to think and think about it a hundred years ago uh christians jews and muslims lived peacefully exactly. in jerusalem and the, and i i don't want to get too much into history here but the whole reason why we're having our problems world war one the balfour declaration look it up british government saying they supported the creation of a jewish state in the aftermath of, aftermath of the fall of the Ottoman Empire. That's the root of all of our problems in <laughs> Israel right there. The Balfour, Balfour Decura Declaration. Look it up, everybody. You want to learn something new today? Look up the Balfour Declaration. That's just going to be a running joke now. I'm going to reference that every show. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, that's why for 100 years we've gone from a peaceful tripartite of religions to now one of them is essentially bullying the other one into submission. You wanted to say something, Becca? Yeah. Oh, no. I was just going to say that I, I also was reading a little bit about what you were talking about earlier about more religion based evangelical Christian yeah. reasoning. And I don't really know anything about religion, so I didn't fully understand yeah. what that was. saying. Sorry, so I'm, I a, am, I'm a theology, I'm glad, theology buff. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that you brought it up because I think that is also a really important facet of it as well. So thank you, Danny. No problem. It's what <laughs> I do. The Democrats are also like anti-Israel, but not to the extent of like, oh, like 
they hate all Jewish people. No, that's not the reason. It's how what they're doing, the mistreatment they're doing towards Muslims in Israel. Yeah, and that's what Slotkin said. She mm-hmm. said that it, she said, "Oh, it's not good to just oppose anything of anything th- that was related to the state of Israel." In her thread with, m- concerning the Iron Dome, and you know, there's two sides of that. Poli- there's the political side where it's a political debate over, "Oh, do we?" put this money into our funding bill and that's something where it can be perceived as oh they're just acting against the state of Israel but there's another part of it where this actual conversation needs to happen in government where it's all right what is our relationship to Israel going to be going forward especially after recent events there's a difference between talking about that in a funding bill versus you know as the official government position of the United States how our Congress is going to approach Israel that's two different debates yeah definitely. and I think well, you can choose to agree or disagree with Slotkin. Her reasoning from a purely political perspective shows why opposing the Iron Dome at this specific moment in this Congress is not going to help anything get through because the issue is too divisive and it's threatening to bring down the bill, which is really the heart of the story here. So I think that's all we have to say about Israel, guys. Yes, we talked for for a good minute about that. Yeah. And I'm excited to hear this interview. Yeah, so Yao Bonsu, shout out to Yao, he's in the office right now. He gave me a great interview with Sophia Laspina, who is the first high school football player in Long Island who's a female to score a touchdown. That is incredible history right there. I love that. Yeah, we, <laughs> I, 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 the interview was really, really great. I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. And without further ado, here is Sophia Laspina with Yao Bonsu. FM WRHU. I am now joined by a very special guest. She's a Mepham High School football player who made history, or should I say herstory, by being the first female football player in Long Island history to score a touchdown. It is Miss Sophia Laspina. Sophia, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. So my first question here, I want to touch on your entire journey. Can you take me through the story of how you got interested in football and how you became a player? It all started like a long time ago uh, when I just played in the backyard with my siblings, my two brothers and my sister, and just watching the Jets play um, on the TV. And then I started getting interested in like with the wide receivers, and I was like, you know what, let me give it a try in seventh grade. Definitely a great experience playing with your family, not so much being a Jets fan. So can you tell me again, what were some of the challenges you faced when you first started playing competitively, and how did you overcome them? Uh, Some of the challenges were that most of the guys were faster than me and stronger than me, so it was very difficult to, like, just tackle someone or, like, um, just run past them on a route. But I, um, and when I got to Mepham, I went to the lifts and I practiced harder. And I'm not still at their skill, but I definitely improved. So talk to me about that when you first joined the team. What's it like being in the huddle and being a fo- female football player on an all-male team? Is it awkward? Is it exciting? Talk to me about that a little. Um, it's exciting. I mean, I'm the only female 
Um, and they don't treat me any different. They're always so supportive of me, the coaches and the teammates. So um, it's good to know that, like, they're it's just they're so supportive that there's really no difference. And then that led to obviously the history making feet over the weekend. Paint me every single part of the picture here of that play from the huddle to when the referee rolls his arms to signal the touchdown. Uh, well, first, it was just the first play uh, when I got in the second quarter. Um, I ran routes, but I didn't really get the ball in the second quarter. In the third quarter, I got a five-yard out. I caught that and gained, I think, 15 yards. And then um, the second play was a stick route. I gained, uh, I don't know how many routes there. And then the last play was the five-yard out, and that was a touchdown. My teammates were just coming at me. They were so happy. They're, they're like, oh, my God, like, that's amazing. And, um, yeah, my coaches and teammates on the sideline were screaming my name. It was awesome. And you said at first when you scored the touchdown that you didn't know the significance of it, but once you realized the history that you made, what was your reaction when you found out? I was just home, just on my phone, and then uh, I found out when Newsday asked my mom if they could interview me, and I was like, Newsday wants to interview me? And then she was like, yeah, you just made history, and I was like, what? And then it went from there. And then from Newsday came CBS and Fox, and now here, WRHU, you are definitely yeah. a trailblazer for young female athletes everywhere and i know you're still young but what advice do you have for female athletes looking to play on male dominant teams the way you are doing so right now i just hope that any females that want to play football or any other sport that females don't usually play uh to just keep going and do it if they feel like it and don't let any uh people that are not supporting you bring you down or make you not want to play the sport and is there anything else you'd like to add about the feed, about your history making? What's next in the future for you? Um, I'm planning to play senior year. And if I like it that much, I might try it in college. And hopefully, maybe we could see you as the first female in the NFL. You never know. So definitely yes. a pleasure speaking with you today. Truly, thank you and congratulations on all the success that you've seen so far. Thank you. All right. Take care. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Long Island's largest radio news team brings you the Associated Press award-winning program, Newsline. Weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Exclusively on WRHU-FM and WRHU.org Radio Hofstra University. Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. And we are back again. Special thanks to Yao for letting us air that package. It aired on Newsline last night, and you get to hear it this morning. And we have one more story and a good amount of time to talk about it, too, because it's a big one. It's about Roe v. Wade. Almost 900 state legislatures are urging the Supreme Court to save it. So 897 state legislators from 45 states, uh, spoiler alert, they're all Democrats, aside from two independents filed a brief to the Supreme Court asking them to uphold Roe v. Wade and reject Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban when arguments begin in the fall. Arguing that the court has the responsibility to preserve Roe and its companion case from the 90s, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, 
The brief reads, quote, If the court fails to uphold the rule of law and precedent and instead guts or overturns Roe, there will be disastrous consequences for women seeking abortions as well as their families. Legislatures from states at risk of banning abo- abortion in the absence or gutting of Roe have an interest in protecting Roe so abortion remains legal in their state. The brief also noted that removing abortion protection would disproportionately impact low-income people, marginalized communities, and people of color. Now, Becca, I know you put a lot of stuff down for this, and <laughs> I'm going to get to you free next, but what do you have to say about this? Yeah, so there's there's definitely a lot to deconstruct within this story that Danny has so graciously begun for us. So based, the first thing that I wanted to look at was the other attempts at states passing laws similar to this, like a six-week ban. There was a six-week ban in Georgia that was struck down last year. Every single time that a state has attempted to pass such a a uh, short limit on this, the federal courts have blocked them. So this is the first time ever in history that a federal court has allowed a six-week ban to take effect. So this is a really huge deal, and that's probably why you've seen it all over the news recently. So this heartbeat ban, which is what it's being called, is inherently unconstitutional, and this is why. There is the protection of clear precedent. So clear precedent in this situation, we see that with Roe v. Wade, obviously, where the Supreme Court ruled in the 70s that abortion is a protected right. But then the Supreme Court also ruled again in the 90s. And this is where we see the specific clear precedent of it being constitutional, because in the 90s, the Supreme Court ruled that it was a constitutionally protected liberty for a pregnant person to have an abortion before the fetus reaches viability. So this is the reason that federal courts have never allowed a six-week ban to take effect before, because we have this clear precedent of viability. So that is the that's the large difference between this ban and other abortion laws. Basically, viability is when the fetus is able to survive outside of the uterus, which happens between 24 to 28 weeks. And that is much, much later than the six weeks that uh, this Texas law put into effect. Most people that are pregnant aren't even aware they're pregnant at six weeks, especially if it's not something that they want or are trying for. You know, if, you, if you're if you really tr- attempting to get pregnant, you're taking tests pretty often, and that's how you would find out at six weeks. But if it's not something that's on your mind or in the forefront of your life, it's probably not something that you're going to be thinking about taking tests for. Also, something in this uh, ban that I wanted to bring up was that there's no exceptions for rape or incest. And you might think that uh, Texas is a fairly red state. So, well, not fairly red. Texas is, is a red state. Blood um, red. <laughs> so you might think, like, how many people will this really affect? If Texas is a red state, a lot of them probably don't agree with abortion in the first place. Well, 54,000 people had abortions in Texas in 2020. So, and I believe 40-something, between 45 and 47,000 of those occurred Uh, around eight weeks. So that would be after the six weeks. Um, So it's actually going to affect a lot of people in Texas. Obviously, this is a number from 2020, but uh, it's it's uh, showing how they how the numbers could look this year as well. Um, So it's it's going to affect a lot of people. The fact that we're not taking into account the clear precedent of viability and the fact that there's no exceptions for rape or incest, I think, are the, there are two main points that I really wanted to touch on with you guys this morning. Oh, absolutely. That's incredibly important to this whole discussion. Freya, what do you have to say? Uh, just wanted to add on to what you said about the viability. I saw that the laws in Texas are completely unfair. When uh, the law states that if there is a detectable heartbeat, an abortion is not an option anymore. 
And the crazy thing is, most women don't find out um, they're pregnant until six or seven weeks after, which is ba basically when the baby starts to develop. So the law is basically manipulating and making the choice for women. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, and my, what I wrote down is the, okay, the abortion debate, it never goes away. It's probably been the one thing since yeah, the absolutely. 70s that's stuck. 100%. And it's the issue where the tug of war, it never dies. And because in RBG's death, you saw a strict abortion measures across the country. And let's not forget the 11 states, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, with Oklahoma soon to join them as the 12th, the new big 12, question mark? Well, who have laws on the books that will ban abortion completely if the heart of Roe goes away? Will it actually happen? Here's where I sort of disagree with you guys. I don't think it's going to happen because every justice minus Thomas, every conservative justice anyway minus Thomas is got in, got onto the court based on their respect for the for precedent. And in their recent rulings like Dobbs v. Jackson, when you look at actually the heart of abortion instead of the circumstances of the case, the case was more of an eight to one ruling than a five to four. This is coming from a SCOTUS nerd, but I'm telling you that if it does get to the court, like we, like everyone thought in the nineties, it was going to get overturned. I mean, that was right after, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor was on the court and Reagan had his appointees and it didn't happen. They, they defended the heart of Roe v. Wade. The whole issue with Roe v. Wade is that it should never have been determined as a court case. It should be a law. And this is something that, this is not my words. RBG said this. She said, I'd never agree with how it was decided. So yes, the right to choose is correct it's what women, women should have the right to choose but the way we got to it that's why division is so prominent because it's a court case that everyone thinks oh all it takes is one more judge and then boom it's gone mm -hmm. so that's why there's so much conflict it should be a law and that's why you see issues remember the whole gay marriage debate in the early 2000s yeah that's why george w bush wanted a uh, a marriage law to to, to qualify marriage strictly between a man and a woman. That way the courts couldn't touch it. I mean, of course it would pass and then maybe there'd be challenges to it, but his, the conservative thinking at the time was if it's a law, then it, the challenges to it legally are going to be a lot less shake, a lot shakier because it's not a ruling. It's a law that they're going to have to overturn. So mm -hmm. because Roe v. Wade is a court case, that's why this tug of war is going to keep continuing on and I don't think it's going to be overturned, but I can't not say that the momentum has been in the anti-abortion side in terms of states are just ready to, you know, pull the plug if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily saying that I think it will be overturned. Uh, in fact, even looking past the whole debate of is this ethical or is this not ethical or is this something that... Uh, should be allowed or not. I just really wanted to focus on on uh, clear precedent, which, I mean, you touched on a little bit with the fact that the the judges see up the abortion precedent as true precedent. Yeah. Um, so that's really what I want to touch on was with the fact that whether it's ethical or not ethical, uh, no matter your opinion on the debate itself, is that the we have, we have precedent that's been supported before, specifically by the Supreme Court, and now we're kind of going back on that. Um, and this is something that we've never seen happen before. Um, I actually, since you brought up 
uh, former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I saw an uh, article from a year ago, September 2020, and it was written a few days after she had passed. And it raised the question, is her death the end of Roe v. Wade? And this was because Trump was saying at the time that he would appoint justices that would overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. And now he had the opportunity to appoint another in place of RBG. And I thought this was just interesting because it was a full year ago that this was being wondered. And now we're kind of uh, we're kind of back in the same area once again. Like we're still having similar issues. But I just thought it was interesting that um, this question was raised specifically because she passed away. And I know that you mentioned um, what she had said earlier about about how it should be a law instead of a court case. So obviously she was very involved in this situation. Do either of you guys think that her death is gonna is causing um, maybe this kind of idea of it being overturned to be more possible? Well, now you see a what six happened? to three majority, yeah. And absolutely. And the and like I said, most of these judges are very conservative, religiously conservative specifically. I mean, that was the whole thing with Amy Comey Barrett, with her. Um, no, that was pretty much that was questioned fiercely in her confirmation hearings. But as as uh, excited as conservatives are to see that majority, it's just the double. The thing with conservative philosophy on the court is sure they look at the Constitution and they look at it from a very constructionist perspective, mm -hmm. but they also look at the history of the Supreme Court from a constructionist perspective in that the decisions of the court from the, from the 70s and reaffirmed, at least in part, in the 90s, that's going to stick around. And you rarely ever see that sort of go away. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever heard of um, Bowers v. Hardwick. Hardwick. It was the case against sodomy, right? Sodomy. And sodomy. that whole thing was they looked, that was a more of the, oh, the changing times have come and that's, and we're going to change the law because the, and even Justice Thomas, who vo who actually opposed the overturning the case that uh, banned sodomy, he said, the law is silly, but I'm going to still knock it down anyway. So the uh, conservative philosophy on the court has some of those inconsistencies where it's somewhat contradictory in how sometimes they do rule because they're so attached to that constructionist narrative but at the same time the precedent is there and if anything's going to if america's attitudes are going to liberalize it's going to be in favor of abortion so that's that's why i think it's not going to be overturned attitudes are changing and the respect for precedent on the court and i think most justice, justices respect precedent especially conservative ones mm -hmm. Freya, I know you had some a few notes on here also about uh, RBG's passing. So is, was there anything that you wanted to add about uh, if you feel that her death is allowing Roe v. Wade to have more of a possibility to be overturned? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, first of all, RBG was an iconic woman, and she definitely used her power for the better good. Um, I feel like women in society knew that their choice was going to be somewhat given up after her death. And then when Donald Trump picked Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, who is also pro-life, um, it's now more of a ticking time bomb to see what the final say will be. And just to bring up a few, you know, analytical points, um, I found an article from The Conversation which states that in 2011, almost half the woman pregnancies were unintended. 
and most females that have unintended pregnancies are in their early 20s and a lot of the reasons um for not having these babies are financial burdens um if you think in a more economic it's extremely expensive to raise a child mm-hmm. extremely expensive a box of diapers is almost 15 to 25 dollars now if you get rid of this i feel like a lot of women will be economically burdened mm-hmm. and also just because you get rid of legal abortion you don't get rid of abortion yeah it's going to be back door back room it's going to be illegal on the, on the more dangerous mm-hmm. then you lead then it's death then it's more death it's unsafe it's dangerous that's really the that's really what concerns me even more it's that women are going to get abortions no matter what and doing it illegally is just going to spell disaster for their health and that's really what people are missing they think that once abortion is gone that's it no one's having an abortion guess what that's not true Mm -mm. don't you know get out of fantasy land people are going to find a way no matter what but the way they're going to find is a more dangerous alternative unsanitized unhealthy just more risk for infections Mm -hmm. yeah they they think and this is and i think a lot of people this is actually a fun fact romania banned abortion in the 70s the birth rate doubled after (laughs) they did it they think that's going to happen here but it can't. America's a big country and it's wealthier and there's there's a way to get an abortion illegally and that's going to be dangerous for the mother. Mm-hmm. That's why you can't look at that example and say this is that's why conservatives can't look at that example and say this is what we want. It's not going to happen. Any other closing thoughts before we yeah. wrap up on this? Well, one more thing. So if say that the birth rate did double, uh, even though it is very unlikely. Are we going to be adding more funding to government assistance programs? Exactly. Are we going to be exactly. helping out the Food yes, the yes. foster care system? What about Love providing Medicare for everyone? Uh, you know, because a lot of like Freya mentioned, a lot of the reasons that people do not want to have these children is a financial burden, especially right now. People have been laid off fairly recently because mm-hmm. of COVID. Our economy is really struggling, which we mentioned a little bit earlier in the show as well. So these are people that don't, some of the time, I'm not going to say all the time, but some of the time these are people that just physically know they are not uh, able to care for this child. So if we are going to say you have to have it, then are we going to actually assist them or are we just going to leave them to their own devices, which then is just causing children to be brought into the world that will uh, be struggling for a very long time, which I don't think anybody wants that. Exactly. And that's why pro-life is a position that is very limited to just the birth of a child mm-hmm. doesn't take into account the life, yeah. the living of that exactly. child. That's pro-birth. That's, exactly. Yeah, it's more pro-birth than pro-life. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, guys, we're right on the brink. And we had so much, so much good conversations today. It was awesome. I had really I had a lot of fun to this morning, guys. Yeah, love. Always it. fun with you, Danny. Thank you, Becca. Glad you're back. Uh, nice to see you in studio you again, Freha. Yeah. And for this Thursday morning episode of the Morning Wake Up Call, that is it for us. We have one more show this week tomorrow morning. Until next week, guys. On next Thursday, have a good one.